Um, when we're dropping weight, we have to create the new identity that we want now, right at the beginning, right? And then act in alignment of that new identity right away. So you're not waiting until you drop the weight. Um, and you're not waiting until you drop the weight to do the things that you want to do. You're living in that identity right now. And then the body is going to match it soon enough. Yes. I think that that's really important. We can't expect just to drop the weight and then become this new person and have new thoughts and new habits. It's not going to work that way. And if you do, then it's going to come back. And that's probably what happens when folks go through, you know, HCG or even, um, you know, a surgical weight loss because we haven't done the work. Mm -hmm. You've got to do the work just like anything else in life. It actually takes work. Mm -hmm. And you've got to do that because if you just have the outcome of weight loss without the outcome of letting go of all the emotions, everything we talked about, then it's not going to be sustainable. They no. go hand in hand for sure. Hi, I'm Dr. Morgan Nolte, geriatric physical therapist, weight loss coach, and passionate disease prevention expert. I used to struggle with emotional eating, sugar cravings, and consistency. Then I learned how to lose the mental and physical weight once and for all with a low insulin lifestyle. Each week on the Reshape Your Health podcast, you'll learn simple, actionable, step-by-step -step strategies to help you do the same. If you're ready to create a body and life you love, you're in the right place. Let's get started. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Reshape Your Health podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Morgan Nolte, and today we have a really fun guest. I can tell that this will be um, a conversation in which we are aligned on so many different principles surrounding sustainable weight loss. So PhD weight loss founder, Dr. Ashley Lucas holds a PhD in sports nutrition and chronic disease, and she's also a registered dietitian. She comes to the field of nutrition and weight management with a unique background um, because she was previously a professional ballet dancer and her career was constantly met with injury and a struggle to meet the required ballet specific body type. As a result, she retired from her professional dancing career, understood the importance that nutrition played in her own athletic performance and started along her path to become an expert in the field of nutrition and wellness. Her approach focuses on metabolic wellness, inflammation reduction, and behavioral and emotional support that creates profound, sustainable transformation in the body and mind. And my Zivli members are probably like, yes, Morgan, you guys are going to be very much in line with your philosophy here. So Ashley, Dr. Ashley has a lot of resources and she's going to share one in particular, her new ebook, um, towards the end of this episode. So if you really want to learn more about her philosophy and grab that resource, be sure that you watch all the way until the end. Dr. Ashley, thank you so much for joining us today. I am excited to dive into this conversation. Um, to get started, just tell us your story. I think you have a pretty unique background as a professional dancer. I always loved to dance. I was always bad at it. Um, so mm -hmm. it's fun to talk with you and uh, hear kind of what it took to get to that level of expertise and professionalism in dance. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe, you know, while it was great, what were some of those kind of aha moments? I'm like, oh, man, this maybe isn't the best for my health, my mental or physical health. I don't know what that's going to unfold. But tell us your story. Sure. Yeah, I'd be glad to. First off, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited. I'm excited. Um, yeah, so like you said, I um, trained a lot in classical ballet and I spent my youth doing it. My mom put me in ballet when I was three years old and my body didn't physically conform the way that it needed to. I just naturally wasn't very talented. Just like you said, you weren't very good at it. I was right there with you for a really long time. Mm -hmm. um, but I just constantly pushed myself to do the things that my body naturally didn't want to do. I know like, you know, as a physical therapist, you'd probably be like, you shouldn't be dancing on your toes for mm -hmm. six hours a day. It's just not the way the body is supposed to. And I would say, well, um, I'm just going to do it because I have a passion and I can't stand being told no. I always have to just break out and, and, and you know, prove all naysayers wrong. Um, and I've always been like that. But as a result, I was injured pretty often. I had major stress fractures in my back when I was a teenager. Um, I 
dieted and restricted my calories because I was always fighting to fit that body, that aesthetic demand that is pretty unique and pretty intense that's placed on us dancers. Um, and despite restricting myself and watching what I was eating, I feared red meat. I counted fat grams like crazy. And my goal was to eat three to five grams of fat, you know, um, which now I, I really believe that if I had known then what I know now about nutrition, my career would have been a lot longer and met with less significantly less injury. But um, it was a, a good learning lesson for me. So despite all of that, I was told I was fat countless times. Um, but I had a pretty professional, successful professional career. I danced with companies across the country. I performed in probably 500 plus nutcrackers. Um, but I probably had one or two stress fractures in both of my feet for the majority of them. Um, I was chosen, selected to perform in New York City um, at the height of my dancing career. And, um, you know, despite finding myself, you know, I, I, I expected to find myself up there doing these once in a lifetime performances. You know, every dancer's dream is to end up in New York City and perform. But um, I found myself landed in the hospital and I had no idea what was going on. I thought I was having a heart attack. I thought maybe I had MS and I was really struggling. And after a whole bunch of different tests, the neurologist came back and said that I was simply underfed and overexercised and that I just could not continue along the path that I was going on. And so I was flown home alone. I didn't get to perform in one performance. I was so fearful of my health future because I still had no idea what was going on. And I felt like a failure. Um, I felt embarrassed and like I had to step away from this career that was my identity since I was three and I was in my mid twenties at the time. So yeah, I was just disappointed in myself. I didn't know what I was going to do. It might not sound like a big deal, but it was a, a huge deal to me at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's pretty much the, the base of my story. And during the time after I had to step away from ballet, I really had to figure out what I wanted to do with my life and who I was. I never sat to think about that. I was always just pushing and pushing to be better and do better. Um, so I decided that I would go into the field of nutrition because I understood how significantly nutrition impacted my own sport performance. Um, and so I went on and I earned my PhD in sports nutrition and chronic disease. And there I studied exactly that. I studied what happens metabolically to our body when we chronically restrict ourselves. I looked at what happens metabolically and how we can create sustainable change versus change that depletes and depresses the metabolism and leads to regain. And then I studied most importantly, I think, what do we need to do mentally and emotionally to really create sustainable and healthy change? Mm -hmm. And so I really focused on that and went on to teach at the Ohio State University. And there I learned that I'm not a very patient person. And I really have to see dramatic change within individuals to be satisfied with myself. And so I went back to school again um, and completed my dietetic internship because I wanted to be this true expert in the field of weight management. And I thought that that was the route. I thought that I needed to be a registered dietitian to be able to do that. But there was a really big problem with that. And the problem was that all the information I was fed and taught was all of the same conventional wisdom that I knew did not work for me and led me to failure and injury and still not reaching the body that I needed to reach for my sport. It was still, you need to watch your intake, you need to exercise more. And I was dancing eight hours a day during my professional career and then would go take a spin class and still didn't have the body fat percentage that I needed to get the roles that I wanted. Wow. Um, so, so I just, I knew that didn't work. We were told that you need to eat everything in moderation. Um, that didn't work for me and you need to have more discipline or willpower. And I had all the discipline and willpower in the world and I still didn't have the outcome that I would expect. So I really took what I learned from my doctoral work 
flipped everything upside down that I learned during my dietetic internship and created what I now implement, we now implement in our company, PhD Weight Loss. And I began by working a lot with athletes, um, helping them to optimize their performance while achieving the body composition that they needed, right? Kind of overcoming the struggle that I constantly had during my athletic career. And so what I found had the significant impact on our athletes had an even more profound impact on those of us struggling with excess weight. And mm -hmm. so it just was from that and that work that we created um, this protocol that is now being implemented in all of our clinics and um, our nationwide at home program as well. That's amazing. I want to talk about a little bit more your experience in your registered dietitian training mm -hmm. um, because I've interviewed other RDs myself considered going to, back to school after getting my doctorate in physical therapy. Mm -hmm. um, so as I started researching programs, I kind of learned that what they were teaching was not um, in line with learning on my own. And so I was like, you know what, I think I'm just going to keep going down my own research rabbit hole into insulin resistance, which is really my kind of thing. And so you said you kind of flipped all of that upside down. And so maybe you can start talking about what did you learn um, in school, in registered dietitian school, that you kind of flipped upside down? Yeah, I mean, I think that my first question stemmed from when I was learning about the, tr the treatment of type 2 diabetes. Okay. And it just didn't make sense to me that it is a disease of insulin resistance, like you said, and really carbohydrate intolerance but we're feeding these people 45 to 60 grams of carbohydrate with every meal that they're eating. And so I remember raising my hand and asking the question, you know, if, if 60 grams of carbohydrate requires this much insulin, then why wouldn't we just drop the carbohydrate intake down to reduce the amount of insulin, which is an inflammatory hormone that we don't want much of? And the question, the answer was just that it's easier to medicate basically at um, a consistent load and it's a more well-balanced meal and we have to eat grains to be healthy. You have to eat X amount of fruit. I mean, if I ate six to 11 servings of grain a day, I know that I would not be at my optimal health. There's just no way. And so I was just very confused Mm -hmm. as to it, it just didn't make sense to me. And so it was just questions like those that led me to authors and research in kind of the lower carbohydrate field. And I'm not, you know, saying that we all need to be keto or eat high protein, very low carb at all. But I am, you know, a, a huge fan of and see great success when we can learn about our unique carbohydrate tolerance level and eat within that and understand that we're all different and that there's not a one size fits all approach like we're told and that, you know, the my plate um, wisdom out there just does not work for the majority of us, which I think is seen by or indicated by, you know, the 72% of us who are struggling with obesity and being overweight. Right. Yep. I like to tell people that the my plate guidelines are kind of developed for for someone who's healthy, maybe, uh, but 88% of adults have insulin resistance of some form of, of another or another. And the scary part is that those dietary guideline recommendations trickle down into food assistance programs for school mm -hmm. and to what's served in like long-term care facilities for older adults. You know, it's really harmful advice. And it's interesting that you got your PhD first mm -hmm. and that you did all of this research first. So that when you were getting that information, the RD training, you had that cognitive dissonance. I'm like, what? I am confused. That is not kind of what I've learned. And that's not what I'm learning on my own. So kudos to you, you know, for really digging into the research. And I want to dive into that next. So you have this PhD weight loss program. You talked about a protocol in there. Will you give us kind of a bird's eye overview of what your protocol is and then specifically how someone can identify their own carbohydrate tolerance, like you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, for us, there's two parts to our, our protocol. And one is understanding how um, visceral fat and our fat cells actually work in the body. So a lot of us who are dropping weight, we just choose an ambiguous number of weight to drop. 
let's say we say, okay, I need to drop 30 pounds. It just comes out of the blue. We don't know how we came up with that number. Or maybe there was once in a time in our life where we were 30 pounds less than it less and it felt pretty darn good. And we're like, that's good. Um, but that's really not how it works. Uh, so what we found is that the visceral fat, which is the belly fat, the deep belly fat, um, the fat that you can't pinch or sculpt away or freeze away, melt away. It's the fat that fills up the organ. So I always explain this visceral fat. It looks like um, the fat in a Kobe beef steak or in a ribeye steak. You know, that marbling, that white stuff and the white thick stuff around it. That's why um, sometimes we'll have clients who go to a plastic surgeon wanting to get liposuction and they send folks to us first because they can't suck out that visceral fat. They can't do that. So if you carry a lot of fat in the belly, it's not likely that it's the subcutaneous stuff that you can play around with. The visceral fat is what causes damage. And, you know, um, we're seeing that really high in, um, in COVID with COVID-19, which is really interesting. So I'll get back to that. But remind me if okay. I don't. I'll it write it down. Yes. COVID-19 visceral fat. Yeah. So this visceral fat, um, what happens in our lives is we have these triggers that change the way that we tolerate our food. So a trigger could be for women, I often see it being pregnancy. Maybe if it wasn't the first or second pregnancy, maybe it was the third. And what I mean by a trigger is where you continue to eat the same way you did in the past, but now it results in weight gain instead. A trigger is where you say, what the heck is going on? I'm eating the same stuff, but I'm putting on all this weight and it's going pretty much all in the belly. Another trigger for women, a common one I see is menopause, right? Some kind of hormonal shift. Same with men, but for men, um, stress response is really huge. So maybe a shift in job, um, a change in relationship, that usually is the trigger for men or just some general aging where they're like, oh my gosh, my body's just starting to break down. I used to be able to do this and now I can't. It's not that they've done anything different. It's just that there's been almost like a switch has flipped and things are completely different. So what's happened is over time, the body's changed, the carb tolerance level changes and the fat starts to pack in the belly. And this visceral fat, this belly fat is different. It's thick, it's like a gel, and it actually has its own agenda. And all it wants to do is get fatter as fast as possible. It just wants to grow. And so if you've got this belly fat in there, I want you to think that it acts similarly to a tumor that just wants to get bigger. So it has its own objective. It secretes all these different hormones that helps it achieve its objective of growing. So it secretes hormones that make you hungry, that make you crave. And there's no willpower in the world that's going to help you overcome that sensation of a craving. It slows your metabolism. So you really don't have to eat as much as you would expect and witness continued weight gain. So that's very confusing because you go to your doctor and they're like, well, you're just eating too much and you need to move a, a little bit more, but it doesn't work that way. It's much more complicated. And then it makes you lazy because the last thing it wants you to do is go expend a ton of energy. So now you're like, oh my gosh, I can't get up off the couch. I have no desire. I'm just so lazy. I'll hear our clients say, well, that's not true either. You're not a lazy person, but your body is in this fat storage mode and it's going to drive all your behaviors and your thinking and your habits to support that. Mm -hmm. So the first step in our protocol is to determine how much visceral fat that you're really carrying and how much you have to collapse. Because if you only drop a portion of that excess fat weight, you're at an extreme risk of, of regain, right? It's like shaving the top off of a weed and leaving the root, it's like looking at it, if you do like a tumor, and if you only cut half of the tumor out, you know what's going to happen is just a matter of time. And so that's why it's really important that when you set upon a weight loss journey, you don't just pick 10 pounds of a fit, you know, if you have truly 50 pounds that you need to drop. Mm -hmm. So that's part of it. And then for us, we're really focused on the nutrition aspect of it, the science behind what, when, how much to eat, looking at the macros, we do that for each individual and it's unique, it's customized. How much protein? Um, we're huge proponents of healthy fats. You know, we don't fear fat that I, I made a 180 in my own life with that, which was huge. 
Um, you know, and then looking at the foods that maybe we're addicted to that we need to let go of. So there's this huge food component. And then there's also the mental and emotional aspect associated with change. I've used this term a little bit, but I really do believe we're in the field of addiction recovery for the majority of people we work with. And so looking at that, why you eat the way that you do, what are those triggers and sabotaging thoughts? How we really have to look at the mind, how you're thinking, feeling, the habits, behaviors, the mental and emotional component we've got to tackle to create any kind of, uh, you know, sustainable change. And then lastly is maintenance. And, and that's really what we're known for because dropping weight is one aspect of it. And it's usually honestly the easiest part for people. Maintaining it is really where the work is to be done. So for us, we have a maintenance program that's free and it's for life. We never leave our client's side and, and we just call, you know, call it our maintenance recovery program. And so finding support with that, I think, is really important. Mm -hmm. I kind of frame it in the lens of we're always in maintenance. Even when you're losing, you're in maintenance. You know, mm -hmm. you're still wanting to maintain your weight loss as you continue to lose it. Um, yeah. Did you want to circle back around before we get too off topic to the uh, COVID-19 and visceral sure. fat and why you're seeing maybe more visceral fat um, mm -hmm. during COVID? I mean, we're going on year three now. So, yeah. So, you know, what's interesting is I think research articles or just, I don't know, journal articles are finally coming out showing us that when we carry excess weight, we're at higher risk of more severe disease, right? We know that 77% of people, and this statistic came from a few months ago. So if you fact check me, it might be off, but you know, a large amount of people who die from COVID are obese or struggling with that. Mm -hmm. So now we're finding out the science behind why that is. And, and so one of the hormones secreted by this visceral fat is called interleukin-6. And interleukin-6 is this major inflammatory hormone. It's one of the reasons why we're at increased risk of heart disease and cancer when we're struggling with this type of visceral fat. Well, we know that the visceral fat secretes interleukin-6, and we know a component of COVID-19 is the release of cytokines. You know, we've heard of the cytokine storm. Well, we know that these cytokines also secrete interleukin-6, and they have this capacity to kind of talk back to the visceral fat and help to encourage and regulate and increase their secretion of interleukin-6. So wow. now you have this, this just huge swarm of this inflammatory hormone in there that is related to all of the inflammation, and that's what causes the severe COVID-19 response. You so explained that, that so good. well. Thank you for doing that. Um, and I wanted to really emphasize that fat is an endocrine organ. And so mm -hmm. I didn't want people to pass over that. Will you explain that just a little bit more? Because that may be new information. Um, some people might not realize that fat is not just sitting there. It's very right. metabolically active mm -hmm. and it acts as an endocrine organ. Will you please clarify that just a little bit more before we move on to some other topics? Sure. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 just like you said, the, the fat tissue is an organ and it gets in there and it grows its own blood vessels. It gets a little oxygen supply going for it. And like I said, it secretes all these different hormones. It messes with leptin and ghrelin, which are our full and hunger hormones. It secretes this hormone called aromatase, which in men takes their testosterone that they do have and converts it into estrogen. So they have low T and higher estrogen levels. And as they continue to gain fat weight, it's all going to go in the belly, the chest, and the throat area, indicative of lower T levels. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, it, 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 that's how it acts. It's just like any other organ in the body. And I think we do believe it's just inert. It's inactive. It's just hanging there and not looking the way that we want it to look. But it has nothing to do with aesthetics. Mm -hmm. It all has to do with how it's truly impacting our body and why it's so important we fully collapse it. We get rid of that organ in there so we can create a more efficient metabolism, you know, one that will actually help us maintain the success that we've seen once we've dropped the weight and gotten rid of that active organ that we do not want. Yeah, it's an organ that we don't want. So mm -hmm. what would be your top tips um, for someone? Maybe they're not in your PhD weight loss program, mm -hmm. but maybe someone stops you on the street and they're like, Dr. Ashley, how do I get rid of my visceral fat? 
what would you tell them? Well, I would say that there's no way, unfortunately, to spot check and just drop the belly fat. I find that we drop weight in the opposite direction that we put it on. And a lot of us put it on in the belly first. So often that's going to be the last to go. And I think sometimes we get diet fatigue. I think one of the biggest reasons for, I don't want to use failure, but not getting all the way where we need to be and then coming back up is because we say, I look and feel good enough. You know, I'm done. I look and feel good enough. But then there's still this belly there, this organ that we haven't collapsed yet. And so I think understanding that it's just total weight loss that we need to do. We need to drop our total body fat with and get it within a healthy range. Mm-hmm. And once we do that, then we're going to have a much greater chance of creating success and maintaining that weight loss. And I think that's a key point that I wanted to, to explain to people. As you said, you will have a greater chance of maintaining your weight loss if you actually reach that weight loss goal, that healthy weight for you versus mm-hmm. if you lose, lose some, and then you're thinking, ah, I looked and feel good enough. You're more likely to regain versus if you maybe let's maintain here and then keep going, keep right. pushing towards that goal. That's yeah. an important thing that we haven't talked about yet on the podcast. So I'm glad mm-hmm. that you brought that up. Mm-hmm. Um, what specific strategies, right? So mm-hmm. how does someone determine their own carbohydrate um, threshold or tolerance? I mean, my audience is very well educated. Um, I've had so many low carb experts on the show. Um, and we know that <laughs> m- many of them even know kind of the physiology behind fat storage and how visceral mm-hmm. fat is created. But I wanted to go a lo- level deeper because we haven't talked about carbohydrate thresholds before. Mm-hmm. Um, and why I maybe can tolerate more carbohydrates than someone, even myself, 20 years from now. Mm-hmm. Why is that? How do you determine that? Yeah, so we just do it by trial and error. We know that the majority of our clients are going to feel pretty good within a certain allotment. And so for us, you know, maybe 50 to 80 grams of total carbs a day is where we start playing with it. And we just use symptoms, how they're feeling. If they have hunger and cravings, then we haven't dropped them underneath their threshold yet. Mm-hmm. If their weight loss is really slow or if they're not dropping weight, then we haven't dropped them within their threshold. And so we just really use hunger, cravings, um, weight loss, speed to help us determine and, you know, how they're feeling, their energy level, how their sleep is. All of those are really good indicators for us as to if we found their threshold or not. We want to get underneath the threshold during the weight loss phase. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, then we use fats to keep everybody full and so that we're not restricting calories. You know, I don't even know if you were to ask me how many calories are your clients eating? I would have no idea. I don't even care. You just really track the total carbs. Yep. Make sure that the carbs are right where they need to be under their threshold. And then making sure that there's enough protein there to support muscle mass. So we're just dropping body fat and then using fats for satiety. So if someone comes in and says, Oh my gosh, at dinner, I'm so hungry, then I know that we need to up their fat probably for their lunch meal and make sure they're not skipping their afternoon snack. Okay, so I was going to ask, yeah, how many meals do you recommend a day for your clients? Or is it individualized? It's different for each person. But I can tell you that everybody has a mid afternoon snack. Really? Why is that? Because I don't I'm not a snack advocate. So it's interesting Uh to hear your perspective on this. Yeah, you know, I find for our clients that um, if we drop the mid afternoon snack, there's the potential to go into dinner with old habits of overeating or a feeling of being ravenous. Interesting. I want our clients to enter into dinner like I could eat, but it's not the end of the, especially at the beginning, you know, but it's not the end of the world or I don't feel snacky when I get home. You know, a lot, a lot of times I think an old habit is we get home, we start snacking, we eat the kids dinner that we're prepping that might be done a few minutes before our own. Um, So I just want our clients to enter into dinner, just being in total control, feeling empowered. And I find when they drop the mid afternoon snack, they somehow compensate around dinner time. That makes sense. That makes sense. And I think that what's important to recognize is the aim, the objective. 
is and, and the strategy for each person can be different. So the aim is to not go into dinner ravenous, to not lean into old habits, to go in feeling empowered and in control. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to just really remind people of like, why are we doing that? Well, this is why we're doing that. Mm -hmm. um, so the next question that I had for you, just to clarify, you said 50 to 80 grams of total carbs. So do you track total carbs or net carbs or what's your thoughts there? We do. We just track total carbs. Okay. Um, so you don't in, subtract the fiber. No. Keep it a little bit simpler for your people. Yes. That's why. Yep. That I like that. Mm -hmm. I like that. And then I always like asking people, what protein recommendation do you rec do you have for your clients? Um, and does that change based on their age or their activity levels? It totally changes based on age and gender activity levels. So it's going to be different for each person. Mm -hmm. Do you have we're not, we're not high protein. Um, okay. As you know, if you overeat the protein amount that you need to support your muscle mass, then it can cause the body to secrete insulin, just like eating a carbohydrate. So we just need to be really careful there. And we'll watch that too. If we have a, a, a man eating 10 ounces of protein at dinner and he just, you know, comes back hungry or saying he's hungry after dinner, I know that it was likely too much protein that was impacting it. That's interesting. Yeah. So for those of you who aren't familiar, 10, uh, 10 ounces of meat is quite a bit. <laughs> if you don't track your macros, that's quite a bit of protein. And then the incretin hormones are what she's talking about. If you want to go do some more research there on how does protein really impact insulin? Um, any other resources there besides those incretin? I think hormones? that's great. Yeah. Okay. You had a really interesting talking point too about why exercise isn't that helpful for weight loss, which mm -hmm. is such a common misconception. Um, I think that there's so many hormonal benefits of exercise. Um, I don't know if you've seen this one, but I read um, that exercise can increase the hormone adiponectin, which mm -hmm. can uh, influence that visceral fat that we were talking about to be stored more in the subcutaneous or the healthy stores. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one of my favorite benefits of exercise and that it increases um, our endothelial health or the inner lining of our um, blood vessels. So those are my two favorite benefits of exercise. But why do you say it's not helpful for weight loss? Because I actually kind of agree with you. I think it's helpful for maintenance and mental health. Mm -hmm. um, and metabolic health. Um, what's your perspective on it? Yeah, you know, so so I say that exercise is this really great wellness tool. It's important for all the aspects that you mentioned. So I'm not saying it's not an integral part in leading, you know, a healthy lifestyle and having the best body possible. But it's just not a, a huge weight loss tool from a calories in and calories out perspective. You would have to run about 350 miles or cycle 1,000 miles to burn just 10 pounds of fat. Um, I find that it's a huge appetite stimulator. So if you're exercising above a certain amount, and that's different again for each person, but where you're just like, oh my gosh, I am so hungry. So for me, um, I used to, and I, I still love it, but I don't do it as much. I used to be an avid cyclist and I would ride a ton and I was probably 25 pounds heavier and it was not all muscle. Every time I would train for some kind of race, I'd put on fat despite, you know, and, and so I would say, despite not eating considerably more, but I know I was hungry all the time. Like I was sitting here working, thinking, okay, what can I eat next? And just distracted by my food thoughts, you know, and then my body, and I know a lot of clients like this, just kind of store and hold on to fat thinking, okay, when is the next time she's going to go ride 50 miles and she's going to need this? So it was almost like it's an stressor to my adrenals. And, and so we just have to watch it. We've been told and inundated with this message of you just need to exercise more. And that kind of chronic cardio where we just are doing a moderate amount, we get on the elliptical just to burn X number of calories. Um, you know, we just, it, it doesn't result in the weight loss that you would expect because um, calories in and calories out, it, our body's more complicated than that. You know, there's a study looking at a group of heavier individuals who exercise more. And you would think from exercising more and they counted their calories at a specific level, you'd think that everyone would drop 10 pounds, but not many people did. The majority of them dropped seven and there was a big group that dropped two to three. 
There's also a genetic component to how we respond to exercise. Some of us, it will but result in weight loss, but that is more rare. And so, um, yeah, it's just exercising in a smart way. Like we always suggest a 30 minute brisk walk. And I do that mainly to get the lymph moving because we know the lymph is so important in weight loss. And then lifting heavy things is really key. You know, whatever it is, your body or a bag of dog food, it doesn't matter, but we've got to lift something heavy. And then I'm more of a proponent of, you know, high intensity interval training or something where there's, there's a function to it, right? We want to increase mitochondria and where we're burning fat rather than just, again, like I used to do, go ride my bike for 50 miles and then be upset when my weight kept going up. Right. And there are different hormonal um, effects of different types of exercise. So there's a reason that high intensity interval training, the brisk walking and the resistance training leads to better weight loss and maintenance compared to the chronic cardio. Mm -hmm. There are hormonal um, responses to those kinds of exercise, like the level of growth hormone, for example, that's released during the high intensity interval training, you know, compared to the chronic cardio. Just mm -hmm. it's really interesting when you study the, the hormonal impact of different forms of exercise. And you said something I have to ask you to dive deeper into. And that's the because we haven't yet the lymph, um, the lymph system, the lymphatic system. Mm -hmm. I have not covered that on the podcast yet. So I would love for you to give us an overview of what you mean when you say the lymph system is very important in weight loss. Yeah, so so the lymph, the lymph system is in charge of recycling waste, it's in charge of immunity, it has impact on our metabolic speed. And when we carry a lot of visceral fat, our lymph can't flow as efficiently as it should. And our lymph only moves, it doesn't have a pump through it unless we're moving through muscular contraction. And so if we're sitting all day, if we're pretty sedentary, we're not moving, we have um, you know, a lot of this belly fat in there, we're going to find that our lymph doesn't flow. And it significantly for those reasons, I mentioned impacts our overall health and well being. So in our brick and mortar locations, we actually have vibration plates. Yeah, and they're, you know, that they vibrate at a specific frequency that help to push the lymph through the body. And it is just it creates huge impact um, on our clients. I know that might sound weird to people. But um, so this is a little side note. I'm in Nebraska. It's winter time. This will be aired in the spring, but it's winter. And so I upped my gym membership to the premium one so that I can do this total body um, machine that has light so that I get some light exposure, not tanning, but just light. And then you stand on a vibratory plate. Oh, um, cool. Yeah. So at the same time, I'm getting some light exposure and I'm getting yeah. some vibration. And mm -hmm. I didn't even think about that lymph benefit until you said that. And I'm like, oh, great. I'm getting even more benefit from that than I thought. That's right. Yes, that's great. So to me, it's just kind of like 15 minutes of kind of standing and doing nothing, but you're still getting a benefit from yeah, it. That's um, for me, it's a stress management thing. So mm -hmm. thank you for explaining that lymph connection sure. um, related, related to weight loss. I also wanted to know you had another good talking point about like, where do our, where does our hunger come from? Like where, why do we have cravings? Mm -hmm. um, I think this is probably multifactorial. Um, but sure. what's your answer? What are kind of your big broad answers there? Well, one would be when we're carrying visceral fat and the hormones that are being secreted by it induce cravings. Um, when we're eating above our carb tolerance level, for sure, we're going to see significant cravings for more of those foods. Why is that? Will you go? Well, will you explain why. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons why is I mean, many reasons. One of the reason why is because what's in the food, and that these manufacturers make these foods to be addictive. You know, Doritos have the perfect yeah. crunch and salt and spice to it, so that you cannot eat just one. Mm -hmm. You know, I've never overeaten butter or a steak, although maybe my husband has overeaten the steak. That's more <laughs> but you know, when you look at the foods as to what you've overeaten, it's usually kind of a carbohydrate, maybe more processed food item. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the reasons that induces continued cravings. Um, insulin is one of the hormones that's going to induce 
continued cravings for more. One of the reasons why is because we have blood sugar highs and lows. And when we have a low, our brain knows, oh my gosh, we need to have more carbs to get that blood sugar up there so that, you know, if we have a real significant low, you, you can die from that. So your brain is, is protecting you from that happening and induces cravings for the food that it knows is going to get your blood glucose back up. And then we have all the habits, you know, and everything that and behaviors that are just ingrained in us. So we have something happen in our life. Um, maybe it's something that's celebratory. And we think, oh, my gosh, when I was a kid, my parents gave me cupcakes when I felt this way. Or even if something sad happens and it's just our coping mechanism, then we're going to have cravings for chocolate chip cookies because that's what we did when we were younger to solve our stress. You know, that was our coping skill that we were taught. So, yes, you're totally right that cravings are multifactorial for sure. Um, but getting and eating within your carb tolerance level is the first step to liberation from these cravings. And then after that, everything quiets a little bit and you can actually hear what your body is saying. You can hear when it's really hungry mm -hmm. and your, your hunger is much more dull, right? It's not like, oh my gosh, I have to eat now. It's I'm hungry, but I could probably wait another hour before I need to eat something or, oh my gosh, I'm having a craving, but it gives you time to think about why you're actually having the craving. Yeah. And usually recognize that you're not hungry and that this is the time to establish a new habit and behavior in place of the old, you know, ritual that you had that was maybe going for the candy. And now what are you going to do? And it's not going to be food related. I like to categorize those as conditional hunger or nostalgic hunger. And I have a beautiful example of this. Um, in Western Nebraska, there's a really pretty lake called Lake McConaughey. And um, I grew up in North Platte, which was an hour away. And so every weekend we'd go to the lake almost every weekend and see my grandparents and other family would come. And it was always a celebration on the weekends. And it was kind of always a vacation. And we had a lot of diet pop up there. Mm -hmm. And um, as a child, I remember watching the show Rugrats even before. Oh, I loved Rugrats as a kid. My mom didn't let us because Angelica wasn't a good influence. And so oh. she walked to the lake. It was a special treat. And what I would do is I'd go to uh, my grandparents' cabinet and I would get their M&M's bag because they, they, to this day, well, my grandma, my papa has passed away, uh, has M&M's. I'd put them in the bowl. I would microwave them for one minute. Oh, would, interesting. And then the inside melts and the outside oh. is still crispy. Oh. And I would sit in their little uh, leather chair and my brother would read me the title because I couldn't read yet of Rugrats. And I'd have my whole bowl of M&M's as a mm -hmm. child because I didn't know better and my parents didn't know better and my grandma didn't know better. And so for years, I craved Diet Pop and sugar M&M's at the lake. Mm -hmm. But then even after I went to college, and physical therapy school, I still found myself wanting sweets on the weekends mm -hmm. and wanting some diet pop on special occasions. And so our subconscious brain is so strange and intricate that it links memories with cravings. And it's like, that is my favorite part of weight loss. It's like, to me, the science is fun. I get it. I understand it. But I think that the rubber hits the road with the behavior change mm -hmm. and the mindset change and really understanding how our brain works. Um, so I would love to talk about that with you sure. and about some strategies, maybe some of your favorite tips on, you know, maybe this is new for someone listening. Maybe it's someone who's heard me say this over and over mm -hmm. and over. Uh, we have a very systemized approach in our program on how we address mindset how we embed new positive intentions in our brain, how we hold ourselves accountable. And I always love learning from fellow people who do this. What's your approach? What's worked for you and your clients? So help us um, learn even more about this topic, which is just my favorite. Sure. Yeah. So um, for us, we have many dimensions toward creating behavior change as well. Um, we have audio sessions that are clients are encouraged to participate in often. And 
they utilize binaural beats and help to retrain the neural pathway in the brain to get us to start thinking in a different way. So it does really require a mindset shift. And Wait, then just what's binaural that? beats, binaural beats, binaural, you're going to have to explain that one. That one's new to me too. So what okay. is that? Yeah. If you look it up online, um, it, it's just a certain frequency and tone of a beat that's in the background. And if you've done any meditation, I bet that there's binaural beats in the background. Okay. And it just works. And this is not my deep level of expertise, but it works to shift um, the brain into a new direction. So there are usually for the majority of our audios, there's two different voices. There's binaural beats. So the, the deal is, is that you want to go into these completely relaxed with an open mind and just let the rhythm and the beats and the messages flow in. And it impacts the subconscious on a deeper level so that the next time you go tour into, let's say, a celebration, you're going to see this stop sign when you get to the buffet table or whatever table there is. And, and you're going to hear messages from these audios that tell you, you know, you don't want to eat that. That's not mm -hmm. going to serve you well. This is an old habit, an old behavior, and it's time to let it go. Mm hmm. So um, those are really helpful. And then we have one-on-one -on -one coaching where we focus on the sabotaging thoughts or the triggers or the old habits and how to reframe them and establish new ones in their place. Um, so just, you know, I, I really believe that losing weight is a process of letting go. It's letting go of the excess fat weight that's just holding us back and letting all, you know, go of all the emotions that are tied to it. And so I find that if we don't let go of the emotions and the stories and we drop the weight, that that weight loss isn't going to be sustainable. We have to change our story and we have to drop the weight simultaneously. And it's okay if one goes faster than the other. The trajectory doesn't have to be equal, but in the end, we have to achieve a new story, new behaviors, a really strong motivational why. Mm -hmm. to meet up with the weight that we're also letting go of. Oh my gosh. I smiled because I was like, Oh, that's the title of this episode. Uh, losing weight is why losing weight is the process of letting go with Dr. Ashley. I like that. <laughs> I love that too. And I think that that probably resonates a lot with people, but I think, um, it's also important that we recognize, okay. Um, I don't know. I don't remember the analogy. It's a spiritual analogy mm -hmm. where, um, Okay, let's say we, I can't remember what it's from, but pretend like you're a little girl and you have these fake pearls, right? And you, these are your favorite pearls ever and you're just clutching onto them and they're kind of like your comfort. And in order to receive a real strand of pearls, you have to let go of the fake ones. And so while we're talking about letting go and what all of that entails, when you let go of these limiting thoughts, of these unhealthy habits of the weight that, you know, from a no body shaming standpoint at all, it's simply unhealthy. Mm -hmm. So when you let go of all of that, what do you get to receive? And I think I love talking about that with my members too, and really helping them future pace their thoughts for, mm -hmm. Oh, what will I receive? How will I feel when I'm X amount of weight? And really encouraging them to start thinking that way now. Um, I think I'll, this is interesting. You'll probably have something to say about this. I think a lot of people want to lose weight because of the feelings that the that they attribute to the weight loss that they assume that they will get. Like mm -hmm. when they lose weight, then I'll feel this way. Mm -hmm. And don't you agree that that's not necessarily true? Like if they don't if they don't lose the mental weight. As they lose the physical weight, it's more likely that the physical weight will come back on, don't you think? Yes, completely. Yeah. I don't know. I just think, did you have anything else to say about that? Because yeah. I the topic. I it's along the same lines, but I always suggest that um, when we're dropping weight, we have to create the new identity that we want now, right mm -hmm. at the beginning. Right. And then act in alignment of that new identity right away. So you're not waiting until you drop the weight um, and you're not waiting until you drop the weight to do the things that you want to do. You're living in that identity right now. And then the body is going to match it soon enough. 
Yes, I think that that's really important. We can't expect just to drop the weight and then become this new person and have new thoughts and new habits. It's not going to work that way. And if you do, then it's going to come back. And that's probably what happens when folks go through, you know, HCG or even, um, you know, a surgical weight loss because we haven't done the work. Mm -hmm. You've got to do the work just like anything else in life. It actually takes work. Mm -hmm. And you've got to do that because if you just have the outcome of weight loss without the outcome of letting go of all the emotions, everything we talked about, then it's not going to be sustainable. They no. go hand in hand for sure. I love, I, I just love that you said that. And right now, what is it? January when we're recording, I'm working on a mindset training that kind of goes into a little bit more of the science behind all of this. So mm -hmm. people who are listening live, um, what Dr. Ashley just talked about was like, create your identity first. That is part of that mindset training that will be available. I'll put a link to it below. It is so powerful. It's so powerful to help our, like I'm, you do the same thing to like help your clients realize what is possible for them. And sometimes we have to believe in them before they believe in themselves, you know, I believe that. <laughs> but it will catch up. Um, and I know that you have a really good resource that you wanted to share with people too. Sure. About the ebook and what's inside and how they. Yeah. Can right. So on our website, which is my .com, I have um, a free ebook right now and you can download it when you visit the website and it's called the ultimate weight loss secrets. And I just included a lot of information on the topic of visceral fat. And I provided some lifestyle strategies that are super simple that create really profound changes within the body. And so that's my hope. And I've had many folks say that it is helpful. And even if you just gain a few tips, I hope that it helps you to create sustainable change because that's what I think all of this is about. You know, it's not just about dropping weight, but it's just about feeling healthy and being able to live a life where, you know, you just don't feel held back from a health perspective. You know, you can do whatever the heck you want and feel good doing it. I think that's what it's all about. Having energy. That is what it's all about. And all of my, all of my members who have created their definite purpose, which is what we call like um, our why it's a pretty robust why they're like, amen, amen, Dr. Ashley, that is what it's all about. So um, will you repeat that website just one more time? And sure. then we will be sure to link up all of your resources in the show notes for this episode. Great. It's my Okay. Thank you so much for this conversation. I knew it would be really fun. I knew that I just, I feel like there's a few people out there that understand the mindset um, behind weight loss and mm -hmm. habit change. And mm -hmm. you can read a book that tells you how to lose weight, but if you're not in a program that's coaching you through, you know, a lot of people tell you what to do. Um, that's not enough. You have to learn how to do it consistently. And so I was happy to find another practitioner that's coaching mm -hmm coaching their members in that way. Um, so thank you for your time and thank oh, you for yes. your expertise today. Thank you so much for having me. It was great. I learned a lot as well. Thank you. We'll talk soon. Great. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to the reshape your health podcast today. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, leave a rating and review, and don't forget to tell a friend to learn more and connect online. Check out the links in the show notes.